In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. We've been given some very weighty texts to hold this morning. Uh, and because of a conspiracy between the group 11 of uh, the member, number of groups that, that constituted Vatican II, who gave us our lectionary, and the God who set the earth and the stars uh, moving in the sky, we have the better part of a month or even five weeks to look at the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, comes across initially as very gentle. It flows in a deceptively easy way, and yet it is the most difficult teaching we have. It's the closest thing to the cross, off the cross, if you like, and it is the center of gravity for our whole project. So one goes into this already with a profound sense of inadequacy, and the expression that comes to mind is one I heard a lot when we were in Newfoundland, a very traditional culture, very traditional religion, often a very colorful way of expressing their connectedness to God. And whenever presented with something truly full of shock and awe, a Newfoundlander would say, gentle Jesus, <laughs> gentle Jesus. They would say other things as well, but we're going <laughs> to, gentle Jesus makes it nicely into our um, our, our community today. And it says it pretty well. It means, where's the gentle in Jesus right now? Uh, what on earth is going on? This production is not quite an expletive. It's not like OMG, oh my God, which is the invocation of deity which we find so irresistible in our culture. It's not a calling upon an all-powerful being who is ever present to help in times of need by those who aren't really convinced that anything of the kind is true and are rather howling down the wind or shouting breathlessly into the void for someone knows something that they don't really believe is there anyway. Some entity that was maybe once powerful, once present, but now is no longer either. When such a thing happens in an invocation of deity is expressed in a way that, in which there really is no immediate uh, confidence, and I guess we're all guilty of that to some extreme, but at the extreme end of this, you're getting very close to uh, a prayer becoming a profanity instead. Calling into being a God that you do not believe is there is surely taking that God's name in vain. Calling out God for not being what he says he is, powerful, knowing, good, and present, is surely even more of a curse than a blessing. And yet it is also the universal cry of pain, reserved for believers and non-believers alike. And it runs through all the Psalms, this crying out to God to say, are you there? Are you the God who said you were good and loving and caring? It is one of the most fundamental acts of prayer there is, yet one of the most utterly profane acts at the same time. It comes from the depths of our being, the cry of the heart, and yes, it goes right to the heart of God who hears it and cries with us. That is how these things work. So, gentle Jesus, 
Jesus, of course, is anything but gentle most of the time, which is what I'm getting around to saying. If by gentle, we mean meek and mild and generally ineffectual. In a culture which values supremely not being ineffectual, which values being in control, getting things done for the sake of the pursuit of wealth, let's not beat around the bush, because making money is the supreme value of this culture. It's been quite decisively demonstrated to be true in recent memory. Then being gentle is only valuable in as much as it is a temporary strategy, a ploy to put off the opposition and show that one is really in control all the time. Now, what else is the church to do with the text we have just heard? which comes from the Beatitudes. This is where this is going. And the Beatitudes are expressions of blessedness. What is blessed? Makarios is the word that's used again. Makarios means blessed. But it means blessedness not just as an objective state of being, reserved for those who are singled out for sainthood. It means a subjective state of supreme happiness for those who are singled out to have everything God meant for us and to be everything that God God wanted for us to be and to be right where God wants us, which is right near his heart, which at times feels like none of us, but in fact is all of us. Gentle Jesus indeed. And yes, it too is a cry of desperation and of fear and of hope. Because fear and hope are always intertwined. They always travel together and they are never found far apart. The hope that we can really be close to the heart of God, that we can really be like Jesus then, trusting implicitly as he does, as he did, in a good God who rules a good world with kindness and gentleness, a hope so deeply ensconced in our being, too, from birth, that it is taken for granted, which means it's up for grabs, which means it's ready to be taken away and taken down by any other worldview which comes along. We're all given this trust, I believe, in this good God. I think he gives himself in common grace a witness deep in the hearts of all of his creatures, believe it or not. We know he's there, and we know who is the God who is there. And we know he is good and loving and just, yes, but that he is kind. And that worldview doesn't last long in the world in which that kind and gracious God has placed us. Fear, in other words, which is the coin of the realm of this world and the prince of this world, and that fear suggests that this world is really not so good, And that anything good that we have got is up for grabs by anyone with a stronger grip and a longer reach who might try to get it. In that kind of a world, gentleness just doesn't last for very long. And so our world and our church, which is in the world, and sometimes more of it than I wish it was, whether big and institutional or small and sectarian, the church does this well as well. It sets itself up as a kind of fortress fear. It's the fear of God we're supposed to be dealing with 
but the fear of this world eventually overtakes it. And it teaches us how to hang on to what we get spiritually now and ensconce ourselves, our ego, I'll never say that, but that's what's close to our heart, not God, in the center of that castle on a hill. Me first, and what's mine is mine, and don't you try to get it. It's fear, in other words. And it's a fear which speaks not from what could be ahead, but speaks from what we know we've already lost somehow. This is original sin in a nutshell. It's what we've lost, which speaks from the heart of the Beatitudes as well. And the one who blesses life's losers, not life's winners, sorry. Yes, literally, the one thing that binds these Beatitudes together is the sense, the fact of loss, that something was, something was there which was and which is no more. Some source of our happiness and our well-being is gone to be replaced by, and this is where the Beatitudes in Jesus get interesting, to be replaced by happiness. We've lost our happiness, we've joined the most despised, feared, and downtrodden group in the world, Jesus is saying, and you're doing just fine. Because real happiness, real happiness is yours. You've got it, and you don't even know it. Happy are you, he is saying, if, if, if. And if you go through these Beatitudes with the sense that the real happiness he's promising you is something that's already our possession. They become an absolutely liberating text because blessedness is surely not what it's cracked up to be, some great achievement, some great work reserved for plaster saints who went for glory to get their place on a pedestal all alone. The saints are always all alone on their little pedestal. The ultimate in ego gratification, if you like. They simply traded one crown, a worldly crown, from a heavenly one. And a worldly ego for a heavenly one, which is a mis it doesn't even exist. So Jesus is here to remind us. That he has no mind for plaster saints in some great marble pantheon, intoxicated by its own glory. Jesus has a mind and a heart for those saints who have lost everything and know it. Like many in our culture, I could think of the procession of the unborn, who in our lifetime, day by day, go to glory without ever being allowed to spend any time on earth in their great procession. And I think of our refugees, very similar, on whom we are now trying to balance what we might want to pay for our national security and what our national security, our hope of heaven, is worth when we look at their guaranteed national insecurity, the utter hell in which they live. And we're trying to ration what is the proper ratio of costs and benefits that we're to pay for this. But I notice that in the whole process of trying to weigh this, we find ourselves being drawn up into that same place, fortress fear, where suddenly everything is a threat and we have no protection and we're utterly vulnerable. Fear doesn't get us far when faith is that to which we are called. Jesus is here to bring us to the place of faith and to get rid of our fear. 
And our hope is that his words to those we most fear, those who have lost everything, the losers, the losers, sad, those we fear because we are so afraid that we will be like them, that there is nothing we will do, we will not do to stop it, nothing, just wait. Our hope is that Jesus' words will still speak comfort to someone just as long as it isn't us. This is the bottom line. We love the Beatitudes. You'll hear me preach, but let's hope they're written to somebody else because we don't want any part of blessings like this. We're happy with the ones we have got. Thank you, Jesus, very much. And we don't want anything you're offering if it's got anything to do with loss. But Jesus is saying, loss is your best offer. Trust me, it's the best thing I've got. If you want the happiness I've got in store for you, the happiness I put in your heart when you were a child. The point is, we are all refugees, if you like, driven out of our true home, the Eden in the heart of God and of his world, and of this world, the world he lives. When we find that true happiness, we find a God we can trust. And this God is the father that most of us never knew, <laughs> and the father that most of us never were, which the one the one who was there for whenever, whatever had happened out there or in there to rob you and I of our happiness, needed addressing, naming, taking out, taking apart, putting away so that our hearts could be made whole again and tender again, so that they could beat again, so that you and I could run out and play again in a world you and I could trust. Whatever our real fathers were like, the Father in heaven has set in our hearts a sense of his fatherhood, and we measure everything by that. And that is a God the Father who has made us free to trust, free to live, and free to live, and free to be gentle. Gentle Jesus. So I say it again, as close to the Father as any of us will get, so he tells us, this Jesus who at times is anything but gentle, whose plan for this world, this world of me first, is such a radical overhaul, such a revolutionary turning upside down that it would knock our eyes out, which is exactly what has to happen, what has to be, what has to become. We have to get knocked flat on our back and the wind taken out of our sails both as a world and as a nation and as a church before we are ready to listen, before we begin to hear what Jesus is saying. Gentle Jesus, yes. We have to lose all hope in any righteousness we have, which means self-righteousness, which means any hope of an ability to stand before God and say, oh, but you owe me for this. I got this right. Remember, Aren't you glad that you saved me so I could do this for you? Forget it. Forget it. We have to lose all hope in such righteousness. Any righteousness which have, which means you can say we have any hope of justice, which means getting what's ours, what's coming to us or to anybody else. We have to surrender it, give it up, justice, forget it, and simply cry for mercy. 
We have to be ready to take, to accept whatever God is pleased to give us, no questions asked. And that's what it means to walk humbly with our God. To love justice, yes, because without justice there is nothing more. To love justice and to want justice for the whole world and even for oneself. But in the end, to pray for something much more than justice, and that is mercy. And in the end, to expect nothing of God, to understand that one is entitled to exactly nothing from God. We can't take mercy for granted. And to have such a sense of the price and the cost of getting our own egocentricity, our own me first, our own narcissistic fix dealt with, that we begin to realize what we have forfeited by setting out our priorities so. That we are owed nothing because we have sought to get our own way in everything. So we are here, gentle Lord Jesus, to say once again that we know we have died to all this, but we also know that we need to die again and that you are going to help us to do this, to die again. And today, as we go to the font of baptism, to rehearse our dying with this child, so gentle and yet so willful, just you wait, that we are ready to lose a little more of what we live for so that Christ can live a little more in us instead. Will the candidate for baptism, his parents and sponsors, please come forward?